But where we need to get to is to not say, well, the solution to my fear is to control my child's body to keep them safe. The solution to our fear is to make the world safe for our kids' bodies. Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out for self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general educational purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. And a trigger warning for this week, we will be talking about diet culture and all associations and derivatives of it, including eating. So please be mindful and take care of your needs accordingly. That said, I want to welcome this week's guest, author, journalist, influencer, Virginia Soul Smith. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. If you're not familiar, Virginia just released the book Fat Talk, and it is to help support parents specifically in the age of diet culture. I would venture to say that anybody can get a lot out of this book, regardless of if you were a child of somebody else, if you're a parent of somebody, regardless of their age, and also just for self and personal growth understanding. I would love to kind of hear more about you and the journey that led you to write this book. Can you kind of introduce yourselves to the listeners? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm Virginia. As you said, I'm a journalist, author, I'm also a podcaster. I write a weekly newsletter called Burnt Toast and host the Burnt Toast podcast. And what got me into this work, it's a little bit of a roundabout story, but I began my career in women's magazines as a health and nutrition writer, which basically meant I was a diet culture creator for a long time. And you know, I would do a lot of rationalizing, a lot of, it's not really a diet, it's a lifestyle plan. And, you know, like, we're, it's not like crash dieting, it's sensible portions or what have you. But I didn't ever feel great about that work. I didn't feel like it was serving anyone. It certainly wasn't improving my own relationship with my body in any way. And it was just, you know, it felt really counter to my values as a feminist, as someone who wanted to believe that our bodies are not our value, to be putting such an emphasis on aesthetics the way women's magazines, this is in the early 2000s, the way we really did that. Not that it's so much better, but it's a different landscape. So this was sort of an ongoing struggle in the first decade of my career as a journalist. And then about 10 years ago, my first daughter was born and we had a pretty intense first few years with her. She was born with a rare congenital heart condition. We had multiple hospitalizations and surgeries, and she became dependent on a feeding tube for a lot of that time. And so I was suddenly in this very different realm of what I thought parenthood was going to be. I had all these ideas related to being a good mom that had to do with feeding my baby, you know, of course, exclusive breastfeeding, of course, making my own baby food. And then, of course, my kids wouldn't be dependent on French fries and, you know, they'd be all the sort of like the things that people think kids should eat that they don't ever want to eat. And so then we were in this 
this situation I could never have predicted. And I realized I had been searching my whole life for this way to do eating perfectly, for this way to do bodies perfectly. And that none of that was useful anymore. None of it was supporting my daughter in the body she had. None of it was helping me work through my own trauma with my body about what had happened to her. So we had to throw it all out the window and start again. And I think that experience, even though that actually doesn't have that much to do with fatness or eating disorders at that point, well, it was a pediatric feeding disorder, but you know, that's a sort of different category. Just being pushed outside of my comfort zone and my privilege for a little bit there helped me start to see how much the way we talk about food and bodies in this culture is disserving everybody and doing such a disservice to all of us and really undermining our ability to feel safe in our bodies. So that put me on a really different path with my own work, led to my first book, The Eating Instinct. And then after doing that book, I realized I still wasn't really getting at it. I was focused too much on the food piece, which is, of course, important and we can talk more about. But I wasn't naming anti-fat bias. And that truly is the foundation of all of our struggles with food and body. And so that's what we have to name. That's what we have to unlearn and teach our kids how to navigate if we want things to be different. There's so much of your story that resonates with me. I myself am also a mom of four. I have multiple neurodivergent children, LGBTQ children. Like it's a very unnormal household in the most wonderful ways and there has been a lot of that journey that brought me along parallel path of you in terms of my understanding my own privilege and the diet culture that I got sucked in on I'm assuming we're probably about the same age and I think a lot of our listeners can also understand that either slightly younger or slightly older I think there's a little bit of variance in understanding the full impact of diet culture and maybe still for I think a lot of listeners who might be Gen X or like a little bit older or even in like I know my mom listens to the show love you mom eventually I'm gonna have to have Carol on the podcast because I talk about her all the time yeah but you know she's like a late boomer you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like on the cusp and I think to consider where she grew up and how her mom was like worth was associated with thinness and these kinds of things and how that distilled into that 80s diet culture that she was sucked into that then you know generationally we have this essentially trauma from diet passed down and now I'm seeing hopefully with work like you're doing with that talk and everybody being more aware of the impact that it can have both to emotional and physical health that we're seeing finally the next generation is living in a world that can hopefully really move the tide full changing Mm -hmm. a lot of this and I think it's amazing that you kind of are getting to the root of the problem of addressing what is really driving a lot of us to feel sucked into, well, okay, I don't want to participate in diet, but I want to lose weight. Yeah. Why? Why do, why do you feel that way, right? Like, yeah. do you want more energy? Do you want to sleep better? Do you want to regulate your blood sugar? Like, these are specific things that we can talk about doing. And like you said, diet is really only 
one small portion of that, like food and what we eat. Yeah. There are so many other aspects to things that we do that affect our health and stress and stressing about food can have such a negative impact as well. So I think people are starting to get it. Not my doctors, <laughs> not most people's doctors, but there we've I've had doctors on the show that are doing the educational work and you know, supporting the movement by helping their peers kind of move forward in that direction. So I think that creating a resource for people like you've done is what moves everything else forward. Like it has to be a bottoms up effort because it's it's not coming top down, right? No, like we, definitely not. Yeah. Yesterday I went and got a mammogram and they had like height and weight on the chart and I don't give my weight to doctors anymore. And so the front desk lady was like, oh, you missed this box. I was like, I didn't miss it. And yeah, she's, just, like, she's like, well, I need your weight. And I was like, for what? <laughs> she's like, and, it's for the people in the back. And I'm like, they don't need it. It's okay. They don't need it. I mean, meanwhile, I had my mammogram two weeks ago and no one asked me my weight. So it's you know, not a standard protocol. It's no. like, yeah. I said to her, I was like, if they're prescribing me medication that, you know, is necessary or if I'm, you know, going to use equipment that needs that, they can let me know in the back, you know, and I just yeah. was like kind of address it that way. But I think that there's a lot of people who aren't ready to advocate for themselves that way or who don't know that it's possible or, you know, from a myriad of different things feels shame in those kind of environments. Mm -hmm. Whereas when we have that rising tide from the bottom of, you know, mothers of our generation, younger, whatever it might be, who are saying like, I don't want the same thoughts that I have about myself and my body to be something that my children think about. Therefore, I have to change my own thought process because they're going to pick up on it. That's the way that like then future generations can be positively impacted and that can affect that doctor's office is now that lady now knows she doesn't need to collect people's weight. Yeah, right. Like it just has to go up that way. Yeah. No, I think it is about these incremental changes within ourselves, within the conversations we have in our own homes, and then looking for those like moments of small advocacy because the big changes I do believe are going to come. I think we're seeing really encouraging things like New York City just passing anti weight discrimination bill. We are, you know, there is, there are bigger changes coming, but. They are coming because of this kind of grassroots, one conversation at a time effort. Yeah, we actually, I did a podcast on weight discrimination, and I heard from a lot of listeners who were really surprised to hear that at the time, I think there were three or four laws that protected against weight discrimination. So, yeah, it's shocking. Yeah. yeah. I know DC, which is where I, well, I live in Northern Virginia, but DC proper has one and now New York City has one. But really, it's unfortunate that it is a discrimination factor that still exists. Mm -hmm. The weight bias, the weight, the fat phobia, the stigma, all of these are terms that you really simply i mean it's not at all simple it's very complex to kind of talk about these concepts and words and culture all of the different things but in your book you do make it approachable so that the average person a parent could pick up this book not knowing anything about anti-diet culture movement or body positivity community or health at any size like somebody could 
not know any of those things and pick up this book and learn about them in order to educate themselves and be there for their parents or, you know, whomever it is in their life that they want to support. What allowed you to kind of become the expert in this to then move it forward as a journalist and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to become the knowledge expert and I'm going to ungatekeep all these things for the average person to have accessibility for it. Well, you know, in a funny way, the women's magazine training actually really comes in handy. Like while I was writing articles, I don't feel good about having published there. And I know cost a lot of harm. The skills that you build as a journalist in that kind of space are very focused on being able to read studies and synthesize the findings, being able to communicate complex ideas directly and accessibly to folks, and really thinking about what problems are people trying to solve in their lives and how can my work contribute to that? How can I, you know, frame a conversation in a way that helps them engage with it? And I think you know, there's all sorts of different approaches to this work. We really need all different approaches. We need a whole, you know, hodgepodge of approaches here. But I think the where I can contribute is with those skills. So, you know, there are folks who, I don't want to say their work's not accessible because I think it is, but they're speaking to a smaller community. Maybe they're speaking specifically to the super fat community and the challenges those folks face. And that's really important. And we should be centering those folks in this larger conversation. But I think at the same time, there's a lot of work to be done in bringing along the people who haven't experienced anti-fat bias firsthand, who that term is maybe very new to them, that they're hearing it right now and are saying, wait, what? You know, and who can, who once they start to do the learning are like, yes, of course, this totally makes sense. But there's a lot of learning. It's complicated. There's going to be these moments where your old belief system still comes up and how do you navigate a decision you have to make in your parenting or in your own life or what have you. And so having someone who can kind of help like break that down into actionable steps and into things that you can really like wrap your head around, I think is useful. And sort of the role I realized I could play in this larger work just because of my background as a journalist. And I think also, you know, being a mom in a small fat body. So there's a lot of like I am directly grappling with this in my own parenting, in my own stuff with my own body, you know, all of that. So I definitely connect a lot to the same questions that a lot of folks have. Yeah. And I appreciate that about you specifically, just like woman to woman, because I myself also know that I did harm participating in diet culture. And I mean, I wrote three diet cookbooks and have before and after pictures of myself out there and all those things. And where you kind of took it and was like, okay, now I can use what I've learned and help. I'm using, a, you know, a path, a different voice to say, okay, all these people that I took along that journey with me, I'm really hoping will stay along for this other journey of yeah. it's not actually healthy or positive. A lot of most of the things that we talked about, right? And so now how can we still live a life of joy? How can we still feel comfort in the skin that we're in? How can we have energy and the things that we want without participating in a toxic culture that was really 
harming us. I mean, there's, I've talked on the show countless times about how negatively diets usually affect people, the failure rates and all that kind of stuff. So before we get into, I am going to geek out a little bit on science and statistics because it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be me if I didn't do that. I do want to kind of baseline with people because as you said, you used a lot of terms that maybe people don't understand. Could we go through some of them just to kind of help people be on that same page with us today. If Atlas of the Heart and Brene Brown have taught me nothing else, it's that kind of understanding what words are or, you know, having words to articulate what a feeling or an action is helps understand their full impact and value. And I think even understanding what fat phobia and fat bias was helped me understand where I was seeing it and like calling it out instead of just kind of feeling gross after I went to the doctor's office. Now I can be like, oh, this is why I feel gross and I have control about this and I'm not going to see that doctor anymore. So I'm hoping you can kind of walk us through a lot of what these terms are in that a very approachable way you did so in your book. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think the Big one, well, we should probably start with fat, right? So it's a starting point because that's a word that a lot of folks feel really uncomfortable with. Understandably, it's been weaponized against us from early childhood. So if you're immediately feeling squeamish or scared when we say the word fat, totally get it. But there's so much power in reclaiming fat as a neutral body descriptor, like tall or short, or, you know, if we can say fat or thin in the same context, we would say brown hair, blonde hair, et cetera. That's really powerful. Because once you take the negative connotations out of the word, you then really diffuse the whole conversation. And you realize bodies come in all shapes and sizes. There's no bad way to have a body. We shouldn't be attaching moral value to body size. So being fat is a great way to have a body, just like being thin is a great way to have a body. So that's step one. The reason it's so hard to do that part is because of a concept called anti-fat bias or fat phobia. I tend to use those terms interchangeably. Different activists have different preferences for the language they like best, but I think they're both useful. So that really is the the knee-jerk bias that we all have internalized to some extent, that there are better bodies and the better body is a thin body. And when we say better, we mean prettier, we mean healthier, we mean more morally valuable, we mean, you know, harder working. We mean this whole There's a whole set of connotations we ascribe to thinness that is not rooted in really any reality. Thin people can be unhealthy. They can be lazy. They can be, you know, like they can be a whole variety of things just like fat people can be. But we have these built-in biases against fat bodies where we assume all of these traits. So that's the bias. And once you understand that that's not rooted in facts about these bodies, it's rooted in bias. You understand that we're talking about a form of oppression that is on the level of racism. It's very rooted in racism, um, but on the level of racism and homophobia and all other forms of discrimination. And so it's really important then to say, okay, well, if I am working on being anti-racist, if I am working on challenging what I understand about gender, you know, if I am working on letting go of these other biases, this is what I also really want to look at and name and start to unlearn. And you will start to spot it everywhere once you are doing that work and be sort of stunned that you didn't see it before. And then the other term I think is probably useful to define is diet culture. 
And diet culture is the whole system of beliefs. It's the soup we're swimming in that tells us all of these messages about good and bad bodies, also good and bad foods. And so diet culture is really anti-fat bias in action. We wouldn't have diet culture without anti-fat bias. That's the foundation of it. And it shows up, of course, in the women's magazines, in the diet cookbooks. Yes, the media, clearly. But it also shows up in conversations we have at the doctor's office. It shows up in our kids' schools, in kids' sports. It shows up at our family dinner tables and in our own family culture. And so that's the probably, I don't know, it's hard to say which is the hardest part of this because a lot of it's hard. But I think starting to recognize diet culture and anti-fat bias, realizing how prevalent it is, and then trying to figure out where you can divest from it and where you can dismantle it, that's the real work. This podcast is brought to you by Nom Nom Dog Food, and Penny and Gus are so excited because you get a no-risk two-week trial at half off. Y'all, I pay for our subscription with my own money because truly, the dogs have never been happier or healthier. Their paws no longer smell like Frito pie, which honestly, I did not even think possible. Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real nourishing food for dogs. I took a quiz when we first started and went with their board certified veterinary nutritionist recommendation to ensure the exact right food and portions for your pooch. Originally, Gus was eating half portions with kibble as well, but we've since transitioned him onto whole portions with Nom Nom because of the health benefits we're seeing. It is a bonus that both Penny and Gus are obsessed, which feels like such a gift, considering how difficult it was to get Penny to eat anything else for so long. Even my mom switched her aging pup, who had become picky and who is now enjoying eating while getting health benefits too. And I love knowing that not only is it good for them, but it's costing us less money too. I didn't realize, but our prior freeze-dried food was $7.50 a meal. Whee! And we still had to put human food on it to get Penny to eat. Nom Nom's real whole food does not have any additives or fillers that contribute to irritation, bloating, and low energy. And the low inflammatory food is nutrient-packed, made fresh, shipped to my door for free for only $2.40 a meal, all cooked in company-owned kitchens in the USA. If your dog has sensitivities like ours, their pet microbiome database helps keep better recipes for every breed, size, and digestive sensitivity. Our dog coats are shiny and healthy without itching skin or paws, and both dogs are at their perfect weight according to our very impressed vet. Why not try it? Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail is in wagon within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your order. Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trynom.com slash wholeview, spelled T-R-Y-N-O-M dot com slash wholeview for 50% off. Trynom.com slash wholeview. You write in your book, I think it was a quote that someone else shared with you to kind of like further dig into a couple of these concepts specifically about fat phobia being based in fear. Mm -hmm. And is it really a political 
term that we have, right, of a phobia, or is it more a bias? Is it anti-fat bias? And what I think is great specifically is that your book is talking about parents having a fear of their children becoming fat because there is the belief that thin bodies are better whether or not you believe that or you believe other people believe that and therefore don't want your child to be oppressed it's all based in fear can you talk a little bit about that being a driver for the premise of the book sure so Aubrey Gordon is the fat activist and a friend of mine who argues that we should say anti-fat bias instead of fat phobia. And for exactly the reason you articulated that fat phobia is not a legitimate clinical fear. It's not a mental health condition. Neither is homophobia, right? And so when we use phobia, we sort of do a disservice to folks with real phobias, like fear of heights or agoraphobia, et cetera. And we let the the bigots off the hook a little bit because we're saying like, well, you're just scared. And it's like, okay, you're not just scared. You also, you know, anti-fat bias is bigotry. It's a form of hatred. And so it's important to name that. At the same time, I use fat phobia in the book because I do think for parents, it's a mix of the bias and the fear. We are extremely afraid and logically so of the consequences our children will face if they are in bigger bodies, of the consequences we face as parents in bigger bodies. And we are right to be afraid because our culture is built not to support these kids. Our culture is built to cause harm to these kids. Weight is the number one reason girls are bullied in school. It's the number two reason boys are bullied in school. We know that the American Academy of Pediatrics is encouraging doctors to prescribe diets and weight loss drugs for kids and even bariatric surgery, despite tremendous scientific evidence showing the serious consequences of putting kids on childhood diets. The childhood dieting is the leading risk factor for future eating disorders. So the stakes are really high and it's understandable to have that fear. And so I wanted to name that when I talked about parents' fat phobia, that it is we are fear-mongered too about all of these issues and thus we have very real fear. But where we need to get to is to not say, well, the solution to my fear is to control my child's body to keep them safe. The solution to our fear is to make the world safe for our kids' bodies. I love that and totally agree. And you kicked off statistics. So let's share a little bit more. I am so with you on the plethora of information out there from Every sort of study that could possibly be done, again, emotional and physical, showing how harmful diet culture is for ourselves, our children, and community together. So I pulled up just a few from, I'll put a link in the show notes to the source, and we'll also have links to Virginia Social and where you can follow her. And again, the name of the book that we're talking about is Fat Talk. In the eating disorder website that I found, based from a medical school and studies associated with it, we find that 81% of 10-year-olds are afraid of being. And I think that really speaks to, Virginia, your calling out 
the fear, right? And so whether it is atrophobia or fear, I think we, it's interesting being on the other side of the soup that we're swimming in, right? Like once you're out of the cup, you're kind of looking in and you're like, wow, I was letting that heavy thing drag me down for so long and give so much negativity in my life. And now that I've finally let go of that weight that was shackled to my ankle, like I can just be myself and I don't have to have this fear constantly looming over me. And the problem is, is we cannot ask that of 10 year olds. Like if no. the world around them is putting messaging in, it takes a ton of emotional maturity and work to be able to kind of pull yourself out of messaging that is so deeply steeped. And I think compounded by models and influencers are on in 1996. So it is a bit dated, but as of 1996, 98% of models are smaller bodied than the American average. And there are brands doing better marketing these days towards inclusivity. But even then, it's not to a full inclusivity like you mentioned. There isn't super fat categories for people to shop. There aren't a lot of disabled models. There aren't, you know, all of these kinds of things where individuals can feel representative of those people who are literally modeling for them. And I think it was set up from an aspirational, right? When I watch old movies and different kinds of things, I think, oh, I get it. That was supposed to be aspirational. It was supposed to create this drive for people because of the kind of capitalist society of work harder to get what you want. That, right? Like if you just do X, Y, or Z, then you can have this thing that feels aspirational. Or then you can be beloved when you look like, you know, Marilyn Monroe, then you can feel worshipped and that's what you want. And like you said, now I think we're able to kind of logically say, I want every single child to feel worthy. Like, I don't want people to feel like either they're worshipped or they're unworthy. Like, we all want to feel safe and worthy and all these things. So it's been interesting to see this tide switch. I think that we're in this, Rachel Cargill calls it a renaissance, whether it's your own or whether it's a literal societal revolution that is happening, which I think it is. I think we're kind of in this. I tell my kids all the time whenever bad things happen, I'm like, it's a rubber band. And the world that's not ready to move forward is pulling as far back as they can and really pulling on that rubber band. But eventually it's going to snap and then we're going to move forward. And so my hope is it's the unique perspective to be in the middle of that revolution and feel the rubber band pulling backwards and have the faith to keep going in those small actions that we can do to kind of push ourselves forward. And I think being aware of some of this drive for thinness in our children is important and also so sad like where also are the dieting statistics drive me the most difficult and also I realize that I am part of the problem because my children were all on an elimination diet from very young ages until a couple of years ago when I was like wait a minute 
this is diet culture, right? Instead right. of being like, this is, as you said, this is healthy lifestyle and sustainable, right? Like it was, no, I am restricting. And that is part of diet culture for my kids. And it's been interesting to kind of reintroduce, you know, processed foods or sugar or, you know, however we're going to name these categories of foods and to watch my children's journey with learning what their body needs. I don't like the term intuitive eating because I feel like for most people, if they've had disordered eating or a lifetime of dieting or ACE traumas or all these kinds of things, then it's impossible to intuitively eat. But to go through that curve of, oh, now I have access to this thing I didn't have for a long time. I'm mm-hmm. going to binge on it and then go well, back to, I don't feel great anymore. You yeah. know? Yeah. It's interesting watching kids explore that. And I think, you know, that came up a lot in the book when I was interviewing parents and kids about their experiences trying, you know, trying to move through all of this. And parents' discomfort with watching kids respond in that way when restriction is lifted is a really tricky piece of this because kids being completely logical. This food has been restricted. Now I finally have it. I don't trust that you're not going to restrict it again. So I better eat as much as I can while it's available. Like this is how we survived on the savannas. Like this is evolution. It's fundamental to to respond that way after any kind of famine or restriction. And yet to the parent, it looks like the worst possible scenario is actually coming true. And because I agree with you, I think intuitive eating is a really tricky term because while I do believe that we're all born with intuitive eating skills, they are so interrupted and distorted. And so often parents are watching kids do this and they can't imagine for themselves having a not fraught relationship with these foods. So then it's, you know, when they see their kids eating a lot of them, it just triggers all of their own stuff as opposed to saying like, oh, okay, this is part of the learning process. And actually, if I zoom out, like nothing that bad's going to happen from a day of eating a lot of Doritos, like we've, you know, this is fine and I can let them figure this out. But parents go to the anxiety place really fast, which is so understandable, but it's a tricky part of the work. Yeah. And I think to be fair, all of us are doing the best that we can until we know better. And I think, you know, it's difficult sometimes to accept some of the ownership of participating in something that feels harmful or oppressive. And, you know, I just want to like take a pause for all parents, myself included. Virginia, you're talking about how you participated in this stuff. Like we, every single person in the entire world has participated in it. Because in order to get to the other side to say, oh, this is not great. I'm, I need to reframe and I need to unlearn all this stuff so that then I can be on the other side. Like you have to have participated in it in order to do that. So, you know, let the shame and the guilt and all of it go. And I know fat talk will kind of help you do that. And at the same time right now, just kind of deep breath for yourself that we're all in the same team together. We're all like, you know, trying to be like, wait a minute, I don't want to play this game anymore. Let's play this other game. Yeah. And what are the rules of the other game? Yes. Yes. We still would feel better if there were some rules here. (laughs) That's kind of the whole thing. Yeah. So I do want to just, you know, kind of remind people we did have deep dives on weight bias and stigma in episodes. 
421, 471, and 472. And one of the things that we really dug deep into is the idea that 95% of all people who diet will regain their weight within one to five years. So even that like 5%, when we look at longer down the line, it's even a smaller percentage of people who are maintaining their weight throughout that their lifetime. So if we are losing weight, it's usually muscle mass that we're losing. And then when we regain it, it's usually not muscle mass that we're re-putting on. And so we're actually harming our health and our metabolism. Our brain goes into starvation mode. As you just mentioned, Virginia, like all these evolutionary markers are telling our bodies, oh, you are in literal starvation right now. We're going to put as much fat on your body as possible so that if you starve again, you won't die. And we're going to do everything biologically to prevent that from happening. And I think whether you come at it from an emotional perspective or a scientific perspective or both, it's important to understand that messaging and the signaling that we're sending to our bodies and how they are going to interpret it. Because when we restrict and when we withhold, we see these negative effects. And when I see a statistic like over 50% of nine and 10 year olds feel better about themselves if they're on a diet, that 91% of college females are on a diet. Like all of these kinds of things are super concerning when we think about the negative impact that's having. So I feel like all of that was kind of important to understand why as parents, if we really want the best for our children, as much as we don't want them to be oppressed or to have people feel uncomfortable with their bodies, the best thing is, like Virginia said, to create an environment that allows for safety instead of controlling with something that we know is harming them as well. Absolutely. So I loved your summation specifically about how the body positivity movement has been repackaged to just be another form of diet culture rather than truly dismantling it. I'd love if you could kind of dig into that. And I talk all the time about this like gray area of wellness culture. And I'm like, people are just like leaning into these words, but not actually like doing the work and letting go of these concepts. And I felt like you did a really good job of laying that in a clear way, if you can share more. Yeah, absolutely. It's really unfortunate, right? Because I think both wellness culture and body positivity, they certainly have a nice ring to them. They sound like things I want. <laughs> they make me feel good to hear those words. <laughs> and they are both at this point Diet culture 2.0, 3.0, whatever. Body positivity has its roots in the fat acceptance movement, the fat liberation movement, which started in the 1960s. So it has a very radical history. This was a time when fat liberation was definitely not on any mainstream radar at all, but it was sort of an offshoot of queer rights and second wave feminism to start talking about body autonomy, body liberation, and centering fat folks. And so there was this early liberation movement that really was happening on the margins, very fringe, not getting a lot of mainstream attention. 
and just kind of percolating along, right? Like there would be occasional like, oh, Susie Orman. And, you know, there would be like these like throughout the 70s, 80s and 90s, like moments of like challenging the status quo, but not really making any progress. And that started to shift when folks started talking about body positivity and how we all deserve to love our bodies. And I think you saw that getting embraced in the early 2000s with the help of women's magazines, with the help of large corporations like Dove, which we could go into more nuances. I think Dove's done a lot of good in this space and also a lot of harm. But the Dove Real Beauty campaign, which showed lots of conventionally beautiful people, but they just happen to have a diversity of skin tones and some diversity of body size, not extreme diversity of body size. You know, some roles, but like in cute places, like not big bellies or, you know, the sort of fat that we really don't are trained not to want. So body positivity became about loving your body. And with the rise of social media, it became about loving your body in a swimsuit on a beautiful beach somewhere. And that's great. I want people to be able to wear swimsuits that people have not felt welcome in pools and beaches. And there's a lot of power in the fat liberation of a pool party. But when we are saying it is our right to be viewed as to, to have our bodies viewed as beautiful, we are only making so much progress because we are still centering the importance of beauty. So what I want us to say is like everyone can wear the bikini if they want to. It's also fine if you don't want to. Everyone, you know, can consider their bodies beautiful. Also, beauty and hotness are optional and your value has nothing to do with your aesthetics. And Broadening our definition of beauty is not what's going to get fat people better health care. It's not going to be what prevents weight discrimination from happening in workplaces and in housing. So it doesn't move the needle on the larger social issues that we need to be grappling with. It makes, or rather it keeps, our feelings about our body as a personal project. And that's diet culture. That's what diet culture has taught us to do, right? To view our weight as something we should have total control over. If we can just find the next best plan, if we can just follow this new diet, we're going to lose the weight. We're going to be happy because we've achieved this control over our bodies. It's all about personal self-improvement, personal project. And body positivity has kind of kept that conversation there. Instead of maybe the, it's not encouraging dieting per se, but it's encouraging working up your courage to wear the bikini and take the photo. Again, this can be super empowering for lots of folks. And I don't want people, I have posted the bikini photo. Like if that's been useful for you, that's great. And it's really valuable, but it's still making it about your own personal work instead of thinking of this as a systemic social justice issue, which it is. And so that's why it's not dismantling the larger system. It's really easy for corporations to co-opt body positivity rhetoric and talk about body positivity in ways you know, we see this with Old Navy all the time. You know, it'll start the bod equality campaign or the just for all of us campaign. You know, these like we're going to be size inclusive. And then a few years later, they pull the larger sizes out of the stores and they don't go. F and so it, it creates this opportunity for corporations to use a lot of lip service around these issues without actually doing the real work of resolving how bias is impacting them and impacting us. This podcast is sponsored by Indeed, the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. I have personally used Indeed with great success, and I also made sure Cole used it when searching for his first job. 
they streamline hiring with powerful tools that find you matched candidates. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. And candidates you invite to apply are three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who only see it in search, according to US Indeed Data. Instant Match makes it so simple for employers and candidates alike. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resume on Indeed match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash WholeView. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash WholeView. Just go to Indeed.com slash WholeView and support the show by saying you heard about it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash WholeView. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I think that the idea of having control over your weight in your body, again, is something that you say it and I hear it and I'm like, yep. But for most people, I'm sure that the brain still goes to, but of course, I like if who is putting on this weight, if not me, I am personally responsible. I must control it. If I am in a larger body, that is my fault and I am to blame. And like, I just want to kind of call out that point that you made as being really important and powerful because in order to dismantle and in order to reframe and unlearn, we have to catch those thoughts and tell ourselves like either what's in the past is in the past. I'm not going to think about it. I'm only going to move forward or I do not have control over what my nervous system is doing right? like you can do breathing exercises you can do therapy you can do the things to help support yourself and you still are gonna have things happen to your body that you don't have control over and just like if someone were diagnosed with a disease we wouldn't want them to feel like that's because you did something wrong if your body is a larger body we don't want people to feel like you did something wrong yeah, and I think it's, I just want to jump in and say yeah. I think it's important to highlight the body size is at least 60% genetics. So, you know, it's predetermined before you're ever fully in your body, what your body size range is going to be. And all the statistics you were talking about earlier about the high failure rates of dieting and how that pushes body size up is important. There's also all these larger social determinants of health that we're really not focusing on enough in the research. So we don't understand enough about how experiences of poverty, experiences of chronic hunger, experiences of chronic oppression impact body size and may impact it generationally. There was some fascinating research I reported on for the book about folks who survived the Dutch famine and how their grandchildren were in bigger bodies. And the thinking is their genetics had learned, like, I have to hold on to every calorie. I survived a famine. And so that got passed down, that the folks who survived the famine were the folks who could hold on to all their calories and hold on to body size. And so body mass. 
And so we're seeing that repeated. And so what if instead of saying it's your fault, you're in a bigger body, or instead of saying like it was my failure of willpower, we know willpower has very little to do with body size. What if instead we were like, wow, what a great survival strategy my body has. Like how amazing that my body has figured out how to keep me safe and that holding on to this weight is something it does to protect me. There's just a really powerful reframe we can do there, I think. I love that. And I love that you brought up both social determinants of health and epigenetics. We went into a lot of those factors in episode 499. So listeners, if that's something that interests you, definitely dive into that. And this Dutch study in the book, I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm excited to because that is the kind of stuff that I love to geek out on. And that also makes so much sense that our bodies and our DNA learn these things. And I often talk about like, what is the DNA of like our children? Who So if there's a female who was home with like virtual school and through this pandemic, right? Like what are we going to see generations from now, both with behavior adaptations, how they choose to parent, and then, you know, what happens? And I think the same needs to be considered when we're talking about our bodies doing that for us without our brain thinking in a lot of different DNA sort of ways. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. I think it would be good to kind of move into what we can do. And you mentioned like this reframing thing about telling yourself, look at what my body is capable of protecting me. Like these sort of thoughts are really powerful. You share more in the book in terms of ways that parents can take phrases or thoughts that are rooted in diet culture and reframe them when talking with our kids that I think is really powerful and important for us to kind of talk about because all of this we can learn, but if we don't implement, change doesn't happen. So since I always like to leave listeners with something positive and actionable that they can do and in this case feel in control of maybe we can walk through what some of those examples or other ideas that you have would be something i think about a lot is how we need to shift our mindset as families from what is really a diet culture mindset where we think one of the best things we can do for our kids is give them really good nutrition and make sure they're eating perfectly all the time and control their body size instead shift to one of the best gifts we can give our kids is body autonomy and body safety. And what are we doing as a family to foster those goals? And when you start to shift your priorities a little bit, and that's not to say that nutrition doesn't matter, that you stop serving vegetables. If you like vegetables, you have them at meals, that's great. But if you shift from how many vegetables they eat every day is like what I'm the mountain I'm living and dying on to I want them to feel safe and secure in their bodies and I want them to practice body autonomy. Then you realize, I'm not going to fight them to eat the broccoli. I'm not going to be nagging them to get up and go for a walk instead of playing video games all the time. And I'm going to let go of this fear of what that's going to do to their body size, because the most important thing is that they feel safe and empowered in their bodies. And that often means their ability to say no to me about something related to their bodies. So that can be a useful big picture shift to make that then you'll start to find all of these small moments where you can really exercise it. An example I give a lot is how much, I, you know, I have two daughters. I think when you have girls, there's a lot of focus on appearance and, you know, we get 
I mean, I remember my first baby shower, I got more little pairs of shoes than I got any like practical item of like anything. It was like 12 pairs of shoes and no one remembered to get us a diaper bin. And babies can't wear shoes, so they were not useful. Anyway, there's all this focus on aesthetics for little girls. And I realized early on that one powerful thing I could do was not participate in that and let them from toddlerhood pick out their own outfits and decide for themselves what felt good on their bodies. And it is hard. There are times where I'm like, gosh, we're seeing grandma or we're going to do a family photo. And I would love to have some say in what happened aesthetically here. But it's so much more important to give them that control over their bodies and to be communicating to them that like actually messy unbrushed hair doesn't take away from your value. You wearing a shirt you feel comfortable and you wearing pants you can play in matters more than you looking pretty. So there's just small moments like that where you'll start to see it. Where you can think like, oh, I can step but back. I, I just wanted to kind of expand on that because I, as someone who had an eating disorder growing up and as someone who is the parent of a child who is in eating disorder recovery, I think the other part of this is to also understand that the words that you're saying are very like specific and valuable in terms of being able to empower someone to have control over their body because, you know, eating disorders specifically are not always about body size. In fact, I would think that there's probably statistics out there that say that 100% of the time it's really about something else and someone is mm -hmm. controlling their body because of the thing that they can't control in their, in their life in another way. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so when we as parents allow our children to have control in other aspects of their life it's helping them feel that way to not go down a right. path of eating disorders or different kinds of behaviors that a lot of teenagers are leaning into because they don't have control and yes. you know whether it be self-harm there is a rise of self-harm in youngsters today and all of the bullying that happens Sadly, as much as we love our children are probably participating in some sort of trolling and bullying online to people that they feel, oh, I have more power or, you know, I am in control in some sort of way because I have a one up on this person. And when we stop a lot of the things that you're talking about as parents, I think it really breaks cycle. And I say that because I've seen it in my own children mm -hmm. by we started being foster parents three and a half years ago in my eyes to our privilege and the absolute very different world that people were living outside my bubble really open, which is the intent of why we wanted to foster and allow ourselves and our children to be immersed in a world other than, you know, what we've been raised in and seeing how, you know, food deserts and food insecurity affects people's relationship with food and all of these different things and then having them come into our house where at the time it was like well we don't have cereal here mm -hmm. well that's what I've made myself my whole life because I ha I didn't have a parent who was engaged and right. now I don't feel safe and I don't feel comfortable in my own home right. and realizing the positive power that a processed cereal could have in yes. someone's life on a much much bigger level than just how that was affecting their nutrition, right? Yeah. Like, or their yeah. body size. And I know listeners have heard me say that before, but I wanted to kind of like really break it apart because it comes down to things like whether or not grandma is allowed to force a child to mm -hmm. be hugged or a Absolutely. cheek pinched 
or, you know, on Leprechaun Day. <laughs> it's not actually Leprechaun Day. St. Patrick's Day. Yes. You know, St. Patrick's Day. Like if, you know, you have a family thing where you have people pinch each other without consent to touch, like that is actually a concept that our family, like we take consent and bodily autonomy to that degree. Like people do not touch each other's bodies unless they have consent. When my children, because I have four teenagers and three of them are rough and tumble boys, like if they want to wrestle, they literally will ask each other like sometimes in a headlock. They'll be like, do you want to go? Do you want to, you know what I mean? Like they'll ask each other in some sort of way because it's just, I don't want them to leave this house and not have learned these things. And I think that's what's, you know, to your point, the control that you have to give up while they're in your house is hard. And if you don't do it while they're in your house, it's going to happen outside your house in a much more dangerous yes. way beyond yeah. just sugary cereal and these kinds of things. And I think when we try to control just food, we as parents are probably thinking that we're controlling more than just the food because that helps us feel safe. Right. But in turn, to your point, can create uh, a much broader and more concerning area of children not feeling safe, not understanding bodily autonomy and how they can advocate for themselves outside the home and in different circumstances. Well, and you're telling them when you're saying you have to eat this or I'm not going to buy this, even though, you're, you know, it's a food you love, you're telling them you need to listen to me more than you need to listen to your own body you know, in your own sense of, I don't want to eat that. That doesn't look good to me. That doesn't feel safe to me. I don't want to put that in my body. I don't want to put that in my mouth. Like if you start to think about what you're really asking your kid to do when you require them to eat certain foods or prevent them from eating other foods, and then, you know, just extrapolate out to the teenage years, right? And partying and relationships and all that stuff. I want my kids knowing they can listen to their no. They can listen to this doesn't feel safe to me. And that can guide a lot of their decisions. You know, that should guide all their decisions. And also, you know, of course, risk taking is part of that stage of life, too, and exploration and curiosity. And that's all great. But it should be happening because they are ready for it and they want it, not because they don't feel like they can listen to themselves and other people are telling them it's a good idea. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Just Thrive. Use code WHOLEVIEW for 15% off at justthrivehealth.com. And if you missed episode 54 with their founder, I highly recommend it. Not just a nerd out on gut health science, but also we did a deep dive into how probiotics have been shown in science to bind to heavy metals and provide health protection. Just Thrive in particular has an award-winning scientifically backed unique breakthrough. It is the only product on the market with numerous peer-reviewed studies and clinical trials, which have showed that Just Thrive probiotic reduced leaky gut and inflammation because the soil-based formula is groundbreaking in its effectiveness. So no matter what you and your kids are eating, it's guaranteed to arrive 100% alive in your gut and has 1,000 times better survivability versus leading probiotics. It's also the only retail available probiotic containing a proprietary super strain that produces antioxidants at the peak absorption for unmatched digestive, immune, and total body health support. I take this probiotic every day and recommend it to all my skincare clients because your gut health impacts literally everything, your well-being, your mood, your digestion. A healthy gut is truly the gateway to feeling your best. Plus, it's vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, histamine-free, and non-GMO. 
To try it, get 15% off when you go to justthrivehealth.com and use code COLEVIEW. That includes bundles and subscriptions, so definitely double up on your savings at justthrivehealth.com slash discount slash wholeview with code wholeview. Honestly and sincerely, I feel their products making a difference when I take them. Highly recommend. And I love the idea of my children leaving the house and knowing themselves so deeply that when invited to do something dangerous that they feel comfortable saying it's not yeah. for me the yeah. same way that they might say eh, mushrooms aren't for me exactly. Um, as, exactly as one of my children does right and everybody in the family loves mushrooms and they give this child a really hard time because he prevents them from having mushrooms at <laughs> mealtime and you know sometimes we make things with mushrooms and he picks out the mushrooms but yeah. like i love that he feels safe to just say like Listen, I legitimately don't like mushrooms. Like, yeah. okay, we're all allowed to legitimately not enjoy something. Yeah. And if we don't allow our children, if every time, even after he'd expressed to me, I really don't like mushrooms. I've tried them and I don't like them. If I continue to force him at every single meal, we'll just take one bite. Maybe, maybe today is the day that it's changed. Like he would build up in his brain a sense of whether it was trauma or whether it was lack of feeling heard or validated and like all these kinds of things that have a deeper impact than just whether or not he eats the mushrooms. And so yeah. to me, it's like, okay, I hear you. And that is not the end all be all of what is happening in this house. Like there are so many more things that are happening in our life and outside the home that is not the hill that I want to die on as a parent. And I think yeah. when we are younger, like you said, our children are younger. We want them to not be a chicken nugget, macaroni and cheese kid because there's judgment or whatever. I mean, I don't know. I just, I feel like if we lean into too much control and pushing versus just like, hey, it's here. You can choose to eat it or not. Maybe I'm lucky that all of my children came around to just choosing the things that they wanted. And I talked to a lot of parents whose ch children are making different choices. And a couple years later, they're like, you know what? They came around. They do mm -hmm. eat a more variety of things now. And I think we just have to understand that is a different. That is somebody else's body. And as much as we're their parents and we want to guide them, we can't control them. It's not our body. We don't own it. Like we're not that person yeah. in and of itself. And I think we as parents oftentimes feel guilt or shame. Like if my child only eats chicken nuggets, then I have failed as a parent versus like what is going on in that child's mind that chicken nuggets feels really safe for them. Yeah, I was going to say. And that they need to feel safe there and in other areas of their life. And then they'll be ready to, to venture out. And be, I've seen it because I've had foster children come into my home who are like, I've never eaten this before. And I'm like, okay, well, it's here if you're ready. And then eventually come around to eating a whole host of foods. But I had to also have processed cereal and yeah. potato chips and different sort of things for them that they feel safe because they've never seen a lot of the other food that right. they feel welcome yeah 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 i think it's really important to reframe the fear of the chicken nuggets and the french fries and all of that because 
you know, I notice every year at the beginning of the school year, my kids get much more rigid about food because they're going through a whole big transition. They're doing a ton of new things and they just do not have the bandwidth. They would like meals to be predictable. They would like it to be Cheerios or microwave pancakes, which are their two favorite foods. And, you know, there's this real like, oh, I don't want, I can't do more new things now. And, you know, I see the same thing when we travel, like we're lucky to have been able to take them on a few international trips. And I'm like, what do you mean? You don't want to try the amazing food of this local cuisine? And I'm just ordering French fries off every menu I can find. But it's like, all right, I like put you in a different time zone. I got you on an airplane. Like you're doing so many new things. You're like, can I just have chicken nuggets and French fries and not also be that? And so I think just recognizing the value of these things and that you're not you're not coddling your child. You're not spoiling them. You're not giving in or being too indulgent. You can have structure around this, but you're saying, I get why this is valuable to you. And there's other food available as well. But like, if this is what you need, I will let you get to the other food on your own timeline. Admittedly, it's harder to do that, to just keep presenting without judgment. Like, I also want to just, yeah, like pause and take the space to say like, if this is challenging for you, like you're not alone and that feeling is valid because there have been so many times where I just want to say to my kids, just eat it. You know, like I just I feel that so deeply because it's something I heard growing up and it was something that I used when I was a younger mother. And now that I've kind of done a lot of learning and I've had more life experience and I have older kids, I realize like I can't. That is not a method that is going to be sustainable long term. Mutual respect is so important. Like I just had a conversation with my kids yesterday and I'm like, do I ever talk to you the way you're talking to me right now? Can we please have mutual respect? It was like a light bulb went off in their minds because I don't talk to them that way. I don't assert authority over them. I don't yell at them. And that is hard. It is so hard because I have to self-regulate. I have to find other tools. Like all of those things are more difficult, but I will say it is worth it times a thousand because when you're able to see them make those choices for their best interest or what makes them feel safe or what makes them feel comfortable, whatever it is that they need in that moment. And they come to you and they hug you and they thank you because you supported that journey for them. Like as the parent of someone whose child is graduating and becoming an adult, like I feel so good about I feel so good that yesterday I did not yell and say, don't talk to me about what and blah, 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 and blow up. I was able to say like, I need a minute to self-regulate because this is not, I don't feel good in this moment and I don't feel like I'm going to be my best self and then come back to them and say, I'm really frustrated that you chose to speak to me that way because I don't talk to you that way. We have built our family on mutual respect and like, I feel like I deserve more. And so I want to also encourage parents that while we're talking a lot about food and dieting, as we said at the top of the show, it is so much more. Being a parent is not just about getting your children to eat vegetables. Like you want your children to be able to leave your home prepared to live on their own. And if they haven't explored, I think this is so important on a broader scale that I want to dig into a little bit more. Well, I think the other one you know, to bring it back to talking about weight a little bit is to think, to spend some time thinking about how you currently talk about weight as a family and how you can take the anti-fat bias out of it. So this might involve 
making a real commitment not to denigrate your own body around your kids, not to denigrate other people's bodies, not to make fat jokes, you know, depending where you are as a family, like there's a lot of language stuff we can adjust. I think families looking for ways to use the word fat in a positive way is great. Looking for ways to increase the fat representation in your home, whether that's art on your walls, books you're reading, you know, TV you're consuming. Obviously, there's like there's a whole list in the end of the book because for whatever age your kids are, this is going to look different, whether you're showing them shrill or you're showing them, you know, Vashti Harrison's new picture book, Big, whatever. But there's options out there. Not enough, but we're getting some options. And so looking to really actively increase that body diversity in what your kids see and and changing how they hear you talk about bodies. And then that also includes, you know, if you're removing the negative connotations about weight, it's fine to talk about weight when you're like, I need to know how big you are to know what car seat size you're in or to know how to dose your Tylenol, right? Like this is like practical ways we need to understand weight and not be afraid of talking about weight. But we don't need the pediatrician to give us a speech about where they are on the growth chart and whether it's too high or too low. So setting some boundaries there, whether it's handing over a note at the start of the visit or just saying to the doctor, you know, I'd rather have conversations about weight if you have concerns outside of my kid's earshot. Just let them know that, you know, you're open to talking about it if they need to, but you're not going to do that in front of your kids. And then, of course, there's the possibility that it will happen anyway. You know, you can be setting all the boundaries you want with people and they aren't always respected. So then having a few lines in your back pocket that help you advocate for your kid in the moment, whether that's saying to the pediatrician, we're not worried about that. We trust their body to be growing the way it needs to be. We don't think the intentional weight loss would be a good fit for our family. Thank you. But that's not something we're going to pursue. Or maybe it's with a relative who makes judgy body comments and you say something like, we don't see their body as a problem. We think their body's great. We're not worried about this. And just make sure that whatever your kids are hearing, they're hearing you advocate for their body and their right to body autonomy, because that will help, that will lessen, you know, the other person's comment may still land and you can talk about it later with your kid too, if age appropriate. But if they know you're in their corner, that takes a lot of the sting out of what the other person might have said. Yeah, I love the being prepared and creating boundaries. I also think that moving away from talking about bodies entirely can be like the avoidant behavior of it can be just as bad yeah, if, if we're not addressing it. Right. So I think for a while with myself, when I was going through understanding that I needed to unlearn and I needed to reframe and I wasn't sure what to say or how to address it, I just didn't for a while. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a lot of shame in not talking about it in the family before then it was like, hey, I see you and this is not a problem for yeah. X, Y, or Z reasons. And how do you feel? Let's talk about it and being able to have conversations. So whether it's in the context of, you know, being openly comfortable with saying a fat body is not a problematic body, if you're not there yet, at the very least being able to say, I recognize that this is an area that I myself I'm working on, I'm doing the learning and I realize like I have a lot to learn and I want to kind of focus on positivity in this area. Like just kind of admitting that ground space and laying it out can be so helpful to, 
your children helping you and vice versa when your children are older. And I mean, honestly, my 12 year old, now 13 year old gets a lot of stuff off TikTok that he brings to me. And we talk about whether it's, you know, LGBTQ, whether it's racial injustices or whether it's about diet culture and body positivity, like, and we're able to have those conversations because we've established that this is something important for both of us and that like, I'm not perfect. I'm still learning. And I love that my kids will bring me something like, hey, I saw this and I thought of you. Are you interested? And then we can talk about it. Or, you know, watching different documentaries on TV together and talking about what we're learning. Like there's so much opportunity if you're not ready yet to kind of lead the conversation. That's okay too, to just kind of be aware and be open and to feel confidence with resources with your book, Virginia, and a lot of other tools that are out there to help you kind of along that journey. But you're not just going to get there overnight. And if you pretend you're there when you're not, or if you well, yeah. ignore it entirely, <laughs> both of those things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they will know. They will definitely know. <laughs> so I want to read some specific examples. I know you said there's a whole section in the book, but I think specifically there were a couple of examples in the early introduction that was like, this is so powerful and helpful for a majority of people that I wish that I could like hand them index cards to have in their purse to just like pull out when these scenarios come up. So for example, if your child, you know, says, oh, I wish X, Y, or Z about my body. If you answer with, you know, you're not fat, you're beautiful then you're still making it about beauty standards. Some examples, do you want to share some of the reframe examples that you talk about specifically? But I think like, you know, when you talked about when they spy someone in a grocery store. Right, um, right, right. And they were I'm like... I'm going to that page so I can remember what I said. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> I know. You're like, um, I wrote a big book a long time ago. <laughs> You know, if a child like points out to somebody, or, or, I know it's happened so many times, like, mommy, she's fat. Okay, how do you handle that? Because yeah. if you right. say, no, she's not, or, you know, whatever it might be, that's not actually helping a situation. Yeah. So instead of, so when a child's commenting on someone's body, your instinct is going to be to rush in and say, that's not nice. You know, don't, we don't talk about bodies or, you know, just don't call people fat. Don't say fat. And when you do that, you're letting them know that fat is a problem. You're teaching them the bias. Even though you think you're teaching them manners, you're teaching them the bias. So instead, you can say something like, isn't it cool? Bodies come in all different shapes and sizes. Isn't that interesting? And then you can add, because of course, as we've talked about, the consent is a really important piece. So you can add something along the lines of, we don't talk about people's bodies without permission. But you then apply that consistently, not just to fatness. It's not okay to talk about someone's skin color without permission, to talk about their freckles, to talk about their hair. You know, we, we respect that we don't talk about bodies in general, not just that we don't talk about fatness. And then for the kids, you know, when the kid is expressing, do I look fat in this or am I fat or, you know, and you can tell that they're worried about it, that's when you could say something like, you know, you look great, but... Is fat something you're worrying about right now? Tell me what's going on there. And another piece of this is if they are in a bigger body, don't be afraid to name that because kids know the world's telling them. And if you say you're not fat, you're beautiful, not only are you still making it about beauty standards and saying that fat is the opposite of beautiful, which it's not, you're also 
not being honest and you're not really seeing your kid. So if they are in a bigger body saying like, yeah, you're in a bigger body, we think that's great. You know, that's, but what's going on? What are you feeling about this? Make space for their emotions about it, but don't reinforce that fatness is something to fear or avoid. I love it. Well, Virginia, thank you so much for, and look, I even got you to read from your book today. (laughs) For joining us as a reminder, listeners, you can find Virginia at on Instagram, it's at the underscore your two last names, which are Solstice. And you're evidently on TikTok, which kudos to you. I gave up. <laughs> My son is his TikTok has taken off. He's he does Lego history skits. Yeah, and cool. we were like in a competition early on and TikTok to see like who could get more followers. And I had something go viral and I was like, nope, this is not the space for me. Like yeah. I realized immediately on, I was like, this is not my community. Yeah, we'll see. We'll you. see. It's been useful for book promotion, but I'm not sure that it's the space for me either. But yeah, I think there's a lot of power in what you're sharing specifically to that generation looking for this kind of information. Yeah. So I hope you stick with it. Kudos to you. I just, Thank you. Oh, I had to draw a line. I was like, this is, I can't handle too long in the internet for me to deal with a new space. And then also they can find your, as you said, other information, podcast, all that kind of stuff at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. We'll put the links to both those and your book, Fat Talk, in the show notes. I'm assuming it's available anywhere people would need to find a book. Yep, absolutely. So you can, listeners, find that at your local bookstore or we'll put a link in the show notes for you. And if you love the show that we create and produce ourselves, please consider supporting it. Patreon is a great way for just a dollar a month. You can join our book club. While we did not read Fat Talk this month, we are reading a great book. So please pop on by at patreon.com slash a whole view or simply leave a review and hit follow or subscribe in the podcast app that you're using so that others can find us as well. Virginia, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your knowledge and experience and all the work that you're doing to help move our world forward into a better place and yes there anything that we didn't talk about or discuss that you want to mention i don't think so this has been great thank you so much for having me great thank you Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.